Michael Jackson? Um, <laughs> and you have beef on that blind melon video. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn it, I'm sick and tired of saying crap like this. Yeah, that'd be cool if I Robin Hood came and I shot these guys with an arrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rock on, Beavis. <laughs> This butthole keeps saying he can dance, but it's like he can't dance. Yeah. He <laughs> can like go to a Pantera concert and learn how to dance. <laughs> yeah. So that would be cool. <laughs> they get their butt slammed around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to episode 84 of Music Nerds Unite. This is Scott Floman again with my brother Keith Floman and our buddy Larry Waldman. In this episode, we'll be doing a draft of the best songs of 1982. And like in our prior recent episodes, we'll each draft five songs apiece via Snake Draft. The first pick for 1982 goes to me, followed by Larry and then Keith. And we'll reverse it for round two and so on for five rounds. The ground rules are the same as in our prior song draft episodes. And as usual, we'll have links to associated playlists in the notes of the episode. The intro song from 1982, which I picked, was the Safety Dance by Men Without Hats but the Beavis and Butthead version of it. It's a catchy, totally 80 song that could have made episode 65, our greatest one-hit wonders of the 80s episode. And the video is totally 80s and totally bizarre, even without the B&B boys. But their add-ons are hilarious, so I kept coming back to this as my intro pick. References to Michael Jackson, the B-Girl, Robin Hood, Pantera, Kicking Nads. What more could you want? That's a great way to open up the show. It is a great song. It's definitely an artifact of, of this era. And we'll, you know, we might hear some other songs that are like that. I also highly recommend reading the Grantland article by Rembert Brown about the first time he ever saw this video because it's laugh out loud funny. I'm all in on anything Beavis and Butthead related, Scott. So, you know, you, you had me at Beavis. Are you all in on 82 though? I'm all in on 82. These early 80s are a bit of a slog at the beginning. 82 has sort of the beginning of sort of the next generation. 82 is where Michael, Prince, Madonna, all are sort of on the scene. So it's sort of a unique inflection point for where music was really going. And obviously, MJ really was the, the catalyst, but you know there are others who rode that wave pretty far. Beyond that, there's a lot here. If I picked 40 songs, I don't know that I would get to 15 that we're going to pick. That's fair. I was going to say, it's funny. When I first started looking at this year, I definitely was not into it or I wasn't as into it as I thought. And the more I listened, the more I, you know, there's a little bit of nostalgia for all of us, right? You get into some songs, you're like, oh my God, I haven't heard this in a while or that's really cool. But there's some really good 
cuts this year. I do agree. I, I don't know where we're going to go. There's a lot of different directions we can go. Definitely heavy new wave influence. But like you said, there's one album that came out this year that dominated the charts and dominated sound for a while. I think there's going to be some really good picks. Although I am fairly confident that I've got at least three of Scott's picks. We shall and, see. And I know, I know like the first pick, not only did I call it to Scott like two or three weeks ago, I even called the timing out to Scott. Yeah, Keith knows yeah. too. As far as 1982, it was all about the king of pop, Michael Jackson and Thriller, the best-selling album of all time. Overall, I do think it's a solid year. There's plenty of really good songs to pick, but like 81, I don't think it has a lot of all-time great songs. And like in 1981, I'm probably going to avoid drafting any one-hit wonders since we had a whole episode devoted to them, episode 65. Time for the first pick. I think you guys know what it is, so let's just play it. Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden, an epic seven-plus-minute song that's on the short list of the greatest heavy metal songs ever. It starts slow and moody, but just builds and builds throughout. With powerful vocals from then-new singer Bruce Dickinson, exceptional drumming by Clive Burr in his last album with the band, brilliant bass playing as per usual by Steve Harris, and lots of great traded-off dual guitars and solos by the formidable guitar tandem of Adrian Smith and Dave Murray. The song's lyrics about a prisoner's reflections 
as its execution years are memorable as well. And it's just a thrilling, high-energy song all around. In the last two episodes, we talked about our love for the Paul Diano era. But Bruce did take them to the next level. And his performance throughout is awesome. Hallowed Be Thy Name is just a supremely dramatic, incredibly exciting, and extremely powerful song. It's my favorite Iron Maiden song, and it's probably their consensus best song to most people. And its parent album, The Number of the Beast, on which this is the finale, that's an all-time classic metal album with other legendary songs, such as the title track and Run to the Hills. I think you could have picked three or four songs from this album because it's so good, but Hallowed Be Thy Name is the one that you should have picked. It's a closer, both literally and figuratively, and that's the last song on the album, but it, it also is an epic close, right? And I know you guys, I like the Dickinson era like significantly more. Like I, I don't think I really got into Maiden until this album, and probably not even when it came out. I feel like I heard it, but I didn't have it. I, you know, I just, friends had it, but soon after I did, it's an all-timer, it's an epic song. Great way to kick this off. They have a lot of great albums, but the number of the beasts is their best album. Hallowed is probably the, I can can see that it's probably the best maiden song and number the best maiden album. I, I do still have that soft spot for Paul. Just the rawness of the first two maiden albums, but obviously Bruce had results through the next four or so albums, four or so albums, although now they're going, you know, 40 years strong. Last year, and they were phenomenal, so, yeah. Yeah, so and, obviously, and obviously Bruce was a different level of artist than, than Paul, who, I mean, Paul's, I think, in a wheelchair these days and, and not doing, uh, and, and just didn't have the same obsessive work ethic that Bruce has. After the concert, he's actually the pilot on their plane. That takes them from from city to city. And peace of mind that right after, I mean, again, they had just a run here and that was just freaking awesome. Just the vocal at the end. So I was teasing Scott before about what he was going to pick because I was, you know, like which clip he was going to pick. I'm like, you got to pick the end because of the guitars. But the beginning is also epic, but you got to get the, the, I mean, I don't know. I didn't count or I don't know how long he holds that note at the end, but it's just epic. Yeah, originally I was going to go with the initial build and the running low, right? Yeah. That build, which is amazing also. Then as I kept going on, it's like, no, you're right. I have to put the end because it has everything. It's got the guitar solo, the groove, the amazing drumming, and then finally the vocal at the end with the drums and the final punctuation mark. That just cements it is, to me, maybe the greatest heavy metal song of all time. Debatable. But in the rock, in the rock, in the, rock. In the mix, in the Definitely. mix. Definitely. That could be another episode. <laughs> All right. So it's a good way to get this year started, this draft. On to pick number two with Larry. So this might give it away. It might not. The song I'm going to pick should not be a surprise to either of you. I'm sure it's on both of your draft boards. There are, however, three different versions of this song. And they're all slightly unique. One of them is more straight up of the era. Another one, I would say, is more extended, more of a dance mix. The third version is the version that people who know the song probably know the best. And in my opinion, it's the least interesting out of the three. It's still great, but it's just not as interesting as the three. 
So, Scott, I promise I won't yell at you. Do you want to text me what song I'm picking? I'm surprised because I thought you would leave this to Keith because of his love for this song. I know what it is. Go ahead. It's bad, man. This is a draft. Cutthroat. Keith had a number two pick. He could have picked it. Can I say it? Sure. New Order Temptation. Yeah. Which version would you have picked, Keith? He's he's stunned into silence. Man. I would have picked 87 because that's the one I'm most familiar with. I'm pissed off right now. I'm fucking pissed off. This is like one of his all-time favorite songs. He broke yeah. the etiquette, man. I mean, you really, you, you could have had so many things. You, you had to pick but I think, but this, you had to, But Holland would have been my number one pick, and this would have been my number two pick. All the girls in the world, Damone, you had to go with, <laughs> with Stacey. Bro, when Keith's last episode said Ceremony was one of his two favorites, this was the other one he was thinking. Yeah, I know. All right, fine. You know what? I'll put, I've, I'm, I can pick up. No, no, no. no, no. The deed is done. I'm the the go I've already, I've already screwed you over. What you're doing, though, is picking, I think, a version that's not as familiar to most people, which should be interesting. To me, this is the most interesting version. Which is? Which one? I'm picking the 7-inch version. Cutthroat. Cutthroat. We don't do enough cut for it. That's partially why I did it, but also because I really think that's the second best song of 1982. <laughs> this version and that was temptation by new order so of the three versions this is probably the most straightforward more synth poppy version of it the 12 inch is definitely more like chaotic more dance it takes a much longer to actually get into it and the substance version from 87 is the most polished version it's more cleaned up the vocals on the 7-inch are, to me, by far the best. They're the most real. They're the rawest. They're the most emotional. The one that I probably heard more is the substance. But part of the reason why I picked this is mostly to be a dick to Keith. But, no, besides the fact that I think it's one of the best two songs of 82, 
I listened to all three versions multiple times to try to figure out which was the right one. And each time I listened to each one of the different versions, I would play them in order. I became more and more, I need to pick this song. And they're all really good. They're very different. They're not like slightly different. They're completely different types of songs. I actually like the 87 Substance version better for a few reasons. You mentioned it's more polished, it's slicker, it's catchier. I actually like his vocals Oh, he got gray eyes. Yeah, I actually like the vocals better. I miss those 87 falsettos, the higher pitch. It's got the more pronounced oohs and woos, and you know we love our oohs and woos. It does have more pronounced oohs and woos. Again, I'm not I'm not saying that it's not a great song. I love it. That's the one I was used to, right? I think Substance is the It is the one I'm more used to. That's another reason why. So that's the one I know. That's the one when I lived with Keith in New York City in the mid-90s. He played like every day, nonstop <laughs> from Substance and from the Train You're really, soundtrack. You're really that knife, aren't you? I think by now they're firmly transitioned from Joy Division to New Order, at least in the 87 version. It's more upbeat. Well, that you, you literally took the words out of my mouth. Is that the 87 version is a New Order song. Seven Inch is still sort of a Joy Division song. That's fair. To me, it's the first New Order song. Right, because ceremony, mm-hmm. ceremony was a division. So, yeah, it lets in some of the light after the gloom and doom of Joy Division, and that's why those more high pitched falsetto vocals, I think, in '87, fit the song better for that reason. We have '79, '80, '81, '82, all with New Order Joy Division songs in the first two picks. No one ever said that we weren't fanboys. If nothing else, out of this podcast, people will get a further appreciation, not only of David Bowie, but of Joy Division and New Order. Yeah. And again, especially early, again, early to, to us, I think, early New Order was sort of their pinnacle, yeah. whereas the popular version of New Order was still awesome. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to take away from that, but they kept transitioning further and further away from Joy Division and the further away they got from that. To me, it was still great, but not the same. I'm pretty sure their streak's going to continue in 1983. Just, Yeah, I think maybe maybe more than one song, in fact. And this is also their most played song in concert, FYI. So that shows how much the band thought of this song. Well, like we said, I mean, they made three different versions of it. So they clearly Mm -hmm. like it. Steven Morris, one of the best drummers maybe ever. Definitely in that genre. Definitely in the genre, right? No Definitely. With, I, I think in the genre, I don't think there's much argument. Ever, that's, that's strong, but we could have that debate one time. I saw them and him, and it was just blown away by, like, a drummer in a new wave band hitting that hard. Right. Because you don't think of it. I mean, you think of new wave, you think of drum machine, not drum. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, now that I've thrown a massive monkey wrench into your Yeah, drum, I got it. Now I've got it. I've got it. But I've got new tools in much. So all right, I got it. All right. <laughs> I got um maybe it'll surprise you, maybe it won't. I don't care. It's an all-time classic. I knew it. I had this as your pick at four after you picked Temptation. Thought there was an outside chance Larry would pick it at two. I would have picked it at 
It's a perfect title for the song. It's descriptive, right? It's telling you what happens out. It's an introduction into a world that a lot of the audience, you know, only reads, you know, hears about reads. It was it's it's like such a groundbreaking song, right? It leads to everything that happened. Like so much came from so much was birthed from the message. It's like Bob Dylan in the early 60s. That's how to me, how profound this is because the beauty and the majesty of music is medium for telling a story. And that's what they did. Yeah, if you hadn't picked this or if I hadn't screwed you over and taken the temptation, I, I would have definitely taken this as one of my top two picks. Totally agree. You can trace the bloodline of this all the way through gangster rap in the 80s through the 90s with Wu-Tang into the 2000s, 2010s. All right, by Kendrick. Nas, come on. Nas, Nas, sorry, Nas. I skipped over Nas in the 90s, yeah. But, you know, like, all right, by Kendrick. You can trace that all the way from this, right? Because it's got a little bit of duality as well, right? This is a transition of, of hip-hop, which at the time was basically about partying and fronting and, you know, talking about how awesome you are to aptly named a message about what's life like in the ghetto. I mean, the East Coast, East Coast in the house. East Coast, definitely New York. But the story is, is tragic, right? I mean, it's, it's about a kid who grows up in the projects. He's trying to figure out what to do, realizes school's not for him, gets caught up as a stick-up artist, ends up in jail, 
gets abused and then kills himself. There's no happy ending. Language isn't, you know, isn't PC. No, there's, there's, definitely, yeah, there's, there's definitely some things we've probably been warnings about, but this was a transition for, for this band in particular, but for hip hop in general. And you definitely feel its influence going through throughout. And it's, it's another one of those juxtapositions, right? Like if you listen to the tune, the tune's pretty straightforward. It's pretty, pretty, but it can be a party tune, but the lyrics, when you listen, are not at all the same. You can argue it's the greatest song of 1982 in total, right? When you take yes. everything into consideration. Yeah, there. from an impact perspective, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, from influence. And you guys know rap music isn't really my thing. When you guys talk about more rap songs going forward, you're probably going to have to carry the conversations a bit. But I actually really like this song. The gritty realism of the socially conscious lyrics makes it very memorable. I can see why it's revered as a classic early rap song. It's like reading a news article. It's real. Just out of curiosity, was it on your board at all or no? Or did you just figure one of the two of us were? I knew one of you guys would pick it, so I was just going to leave it to you guys. All right, double picks. All right, let's go. Yeah, I'm all thrown off. I'm all thrown off. I'm all thrown off. I'm picking, I still have a, I still have a deep board here. Yeah. I'm picking a song just for its fucking awesomeness. It's not a Keith song, but it just fucking slays. So let's fucking slay, guys. I knew it. That was my next pick. On my list of Scott songs, you can't see, but it says Telegraph <laughs> Road right there. I love it. I love that we're stealing each other's. It's so awesome. Just had a feeling. I don't know why. <laughs> Telegraph Road by 
Dire Straits, great Mark Knopfler, and the album Love Over Gold. It just kicks ass. It's just an you know, freaking awesome guitar god song. It reminds me a little bit of the Dwayne Allman Boz Gag song that I picked in '69. I think it was Long Live Dime. Right. It's just it just becomes one of those epic instrumental masterpieces uh, that has that sick build culminating in minutes and minutes of just shredding. So Telegraph Road, it's an all-timer. It is a weird sequencing though, right? I mean, this is the open run, Love Over Gold. This sounds like a close Yeah, right? Yeah. It's so weird. Sure. I almost think to myself, like, this was a conscious effort for Dire Straits to be like, you know what? I know everyone thinks of us as sort of like a pub rock band. We're like much more deep and complex than that. We're going like full ass proggy, more our own thing rock. And so we're, we're going to put a four- Very temporary. Very temporary. They went right back to it three years later. It almost feels like a statement, right? That this, we're going to do something completely different. We're going to show our musicianship. We're going to show that we're a lot more complex than people think. And here you go. Fuck you. It's a 14 minute song. That's going to stand out right there, right? It's one of their great songs. That's why I was going to pick it, of course. I just want to quote the Song Facts website about what it's about. This song is about the beginning of the development along Telegraph Road and the changes over the ensuing decades. This was a metaphor for the development of America and the ruining of one man's dreams in the wake of its decline. And let's face it, Prime Mark Knopfler was a great songwriter and an even better guitar player. And Dire Straits always had a first-rate rhythm section behind them. And all the band's strengths are on display on this exceptional elongated track. It's definitely a top-five Dire Straits song. I don't love still be my number one. This would probably be my number two Dire Straits song. All right. Good pick. I love that we're picking each other's songs. It always makes me happy. Ooh, I thought Keith was going to grab this at some point. Not surprised he did, though. Just a little surprised it's this early. We switched places for this episode. Yeah, I'm going darker in this episode for sure.
Why is it that a song that literally starts off with saying, it doesn't matter if we all die, puts a huge smile on my face? Not because I want us all to die, but because it's just so awesome. This was 100 Years by The Cure, which kicks off pornography, which I don't know. Some of their earlier stuff is pretty goth and dark, but pornography is like, to me, the most sustained, really depressing, cure, like dark imagery, chaotic album all the way through. It's claustrophobic. Yeah. It like makes your skin crawl, some of it, right? Like it's really, really powerful and almost suffocating. Like claustrophobic is a great word for it. But I just think the musicianship on this is so good. You've got a great killer and recognizable Robert Smith guitar riff, which is like a piercing wail along with both live and drum machines thumping and making it feel even more oppressive. It's just so good. I went back and forth a little bit on whether I should pick maybe a different song from pornography, but to me, this is the opener. I think this is the best one. Hanging Garden is intense too, right? There's like- That's the other one that I was going back and forth with, so. The thumping. And you could have gone at the end of the song, you went with the beginning, but yeah. yeah. We'll talk more about Robert and The Cure. Yeah, this is, uh, they're so good. And when he hits, he hits you hard. <laughs> he yeah. hard. Yeah. I mean, this is a dark, dark. I love the claustrophobic as a as a reference album. It really is. It's just, it's really intense. So Hanging Garden is just as intense. In a way, it's more claustrophobic even than Disintegration, just because yes. it's just got that underbelly to it. And Disintegration, I feel like, is a little more produced. It's a little slicker. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting that you compare it to Disintegration because according to Robert Smith, it's the first album in a thematic trilogy along with Disintegration and the later album Blood Flowers from 2000. So there is a linkage there according to Robert Smith. And I think the reason the opening lyric, it doesn't matter if we all die, makes you smile is because it's so quintessential Robert Smith. Thanks. That's him in a nutshell, right? Yeah. And you mentioned the riffs, and they're heavy. This is a heavy rock song. Yeah. And the drums, the grooves, those are some booming drums. And like you said, it has a claustrophobic overall intensity. It may be the most depressing Cure album of them all. Oh, it definitely is. It's hard to listen to the whole thing if you're in for like a really serious listening session it's a lot to deal with i didn't even talk about the end of the second verse i didn't even talk about the lyrics there which are just dark he's pleading please love me meet my mother but the fear takes hold and then it's waiting for the death blow i mean this is yeah this is quintessential robert smith dark. So, so dark love it so good and it's probably their best early album from start to finish i would say pornography yeah all right all, all right, right i'm up so you're going to pick the wrong song off the next album. Probably. All right. So previously we talked about a guy who dominated this year, an album that dominated this year. These guys, as usual, are leaving it to me to do the dirty work. So we're going to do what we got to do. But which song, right? It could be at least two, maybe three or four even. Here we go. You could, but you're probably going to pick the wrong one. That's what you get for now picking it. It's okay. I'm not sure I disagree with you, but this is still the right pick. I'm not sure it's the best song, but it's the song that I think it is the best song. I'm not sure it's the best song, but it's this song you think of first when you think of this album in terms of songs, maybe not videos. Play the fucking song already. 
I don't think of this song first, but okay, fine. I think most people do. The numbers on Spotify would bear that out. Jackson from the best-selling album of all time, Thriller. Obviously, there are many classic songs on the album and many classic music videos as well, including maybe the all-time video with Thriller, which was a mini-movie. But for me, the pick here came down to Billie Jean and Beat It, which is a song Larry was alluding to with its classic Eddie Van Halen guitar cameo. And again, looking at Spotify... The least popular song on the album still has 54 million plays, which is just absurd. Billie Jean currently has over 1.5 billion plays, and it's probably Michael Jackson's signature solo song. Its notable features are its adult lyrics, i.e., but the kid is not my son, its iconic bass lines, Michael's dramatic vocal delivery. No shit, Michael, no shit. It's slinky, danceable, mid-tempo groove, and it's funky, minimalist guitar solo. I don't really have much more to say. I mean, it's Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, the king of pop, and it's a total classic. So I'm not going to say this isn't a great song. It is. For me, it's not the best song off the album, which is what I think we should be doing. But I get why you picked it. I totally understand. And there's more songs that we could have picked. You could make an argument for some other ones. Billie Jean, extremely well-produced. Great mix of R&B, funk, dance. Definitely everything all comes together. For me, I just, I like the opener of Beat It and Eddie Van Halen's solo in the middle. To me, it's just a cooler song. So that would have been my pick, but I can't argue with this. It's a good pick. They're both great songs. It still blows my mind thinking about it that Eddie Van Halen just showed up, played and left, and he wasn't even credited at first. I think he was paid in beer, which is hilarious. And he didn't even tell his bandmates that he was playing on it. But of course, as soon as everybody heard it, they knew exactly who it was. That's the lyrics, right? There's no doubt in his guitar that is. I agree with both of you. Like, if you're going to pick a signature song, Billy Jean and Thriller are probably the two more signature songs that beat it. I think probably. Thriller, that's more because of the video. Yeah, yeah. And it's the album, right? It's the name of the album. Yeah. But... I mean, Billie Jean, just a, it's a classic song. I mean, obviously, Michael doesn't do the best job of selling the idea that he 
might have even been the father, but it's still a, it's still, it's still like right lyrically, it's a compelling story. Again, MJ at that time just ascended to a place that very few artists have ever actually been. That album, again, there's a lot of obviously production behind the videos play a big role, but his artistry was a big part of the videos as well. So. On Thrower, when you take it out of the context of the video, it's really campy. It's definitely not the same level as these two. Yeah. So my trivia question for you guys, what band, oh, or at least what members of a band, Van played Halen. on Thriller themselves had two draft-worthy songs in 1982? I know the answer to this. I'll let Keith answer it. He doesn't know it. She's a midnight runner. <laughs> oh, no. Toto. Well, yeah. but also because Toto was essentially a band of session musicians. Yeah, so they had Rosanna and Africa, two classic soft rock songs, and Steve Lukather actually played all the guitars on Beat It, except for the solo, which of course was Eddie. And Wanna Be Star Something <laughs> is a favorite of mine as well. There's like a joyous atmosphere to that song. It just makes you feel good. It's also a little different too in that it's more like salsa inflected, right? It's a little more salsa and calypso. It's, it's cool. Yeah. It's a great, the whole album is a great album. Yeah, I mean, he's great on it and the backing singers are great on it. And Jeff Porcaro, who's in Toto, also co-wrote Human Nature, which yeah. is another really good song. What I like about Beat It is that in addition to Eddie and the Toto guys, it shows that Michael was essentially genreless, right? He was dance, R&B, disco, and the king of pop, but he could also do rock when that's what he felt like doing. And he sings with a toughness there that was unexpected as well. For Michael Jackson, come on. Keith had said, like, he doesn't really sell Billie Jean. Never mind the fact of all the stuff that came out later. Like, in 1982, you were kind of like, okay, Michael, whatever. But beat it, he sells a little bit more. It just feels more authentic to me, too. I guess that's the other reason why I would have picked it. It's authentic in a theatrical way, right? It's, yeah. He's, a, he's yeah. an actor in a, in a movie as opposed yeah. to... Yeah, yeah. He's, he's selling it more. He sells it more. I think it's neck and neck. I went with the bigger song. One more trivia. Bass player, Lewis Johnson of the Brothers Johnson. They had a big hit with what song? It's a cover song. I don't know. A cover of... I got, I got one. I'm, I'm happy. Shuggy Otis's Strawberry Letter 23. Oh, well, first of all, Strawberry Letter 23 is a great, great song. Awesome song. I actually like the original even better. Shuggy version. Yeah, no, totally. No, no, the original. I don't know the cover. The Brother Johnson actually was a much bigger hit. But yeah, I'm all about the Shuggy version. Anyway. All right. All right. Come on. Now's where it gets interesting, Floman. Exactly. (laughs) The board is wide open. Yeah. Although, well, if you do pick the other song that I have selected for you, I will lose my mind. I think you will. I think I'm going there. I kind of feel like I owe this next guy some picks to make up for not picking a song by him in 1978, as expected, at least by you guys, and from 1980, where he was next on my board, but I ran out of picks. This one is from an album that surprised a lot of people at the time, though many now regard it as a masterpiece of its type. And this is the most famous, and many would say best song on the album. So I would have picked this next. Mine, same clip I just started a little bit earlier. That's an ongoing battle behind the scenes, everybody. Me trying to get these guys to pick shorter song clips. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday comes back. 
it's hard to find Down here it's just winners and losers And don't get caught on the wrong side of that line Well, I'm tired of coming out on this losing end So honey, last night I met this guy And I'm gonna do a little favor for him Well, I guess everything dies, baby, that's a That was Atlantic City from Nebraska, the first true solo album from Bruce Springsteen, regardless of the billing on his album covers. (laughs) I knew you were going to say something to that effect. Recorded album of stark, dark, desolate, sad folk songs after he was poised for mainstream superstardom after the river took a lot of guts and showed that Bruce was a true artist. That massive success would come soon enough with Born in the USA in 1984. But these days, I listen to this album more than that one. Maybe that just means I'm getting old and boring. Atlantic City is such a haunting and evocative song, and the album on the whole shows off what a great writer Bruce was. This is the most musically fleshed out and commercial song on the album, but it's still fairly stripped down compared to most of Bruce's music. You have an acoustic guitar, multiple Bruce's singing, and mandolin harmonica. Right away, the lyrics, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night, make you take notice. Who is the chicken man, and why did they blow him up? That's a mystery you can figure out for yourselves. It's about a mob hit, and the song itself is about the mysterious city, which is both glamorous and kind of a dump. And there are many other favorite songs of mine on the album, like the title track about a notorious serial killer, or the great story song about mismatched brothers, Highway Patrolman. The lyrics of the album really make you want to pay attention and think. This is adult-themed, thinking people music. There are times on the album when the music doesn't live up to the excellent writing, but the music on Atlantic City is excellent as well, which is why I picked it to represent the album. I did have this as a song that Scott will pick, but it was also very high on my draft board, and I would have picked it next had you not selected as one of your two songs. I went back and forth. I had a similar but slightly longer clip from the end, but I also had the first like minute 45 because the opener is a killer. I actually had that at first and switched it to the end. I had both and I was going to make sort of a game day decision about it. To me, this is one of his probably top four or five songs. It's so evocative. And the other thing too is I never heard this song growing up. Like I never heard it on the Uh radio. Nothing on Nebraska really ever gets played. The recording of Nebraska and a lot of the songs on Born in the USA are actually the same sessions. It's just there was a realization that there are some very different types of songs and almost like a decision to, well, I'm going to do one that's a little more 
bare, a little more folk rock oriented, and then one that's a little bit more straight up rock and roll. Yeah, and he was going to record these songs with the E Street Band, but he realized he couldn't top what he had on tape, so go with it. And this is one of the great album covers, too. That black and white cover. We say how, like, My Bloody Valentine, Loveless picture and the music are a complete match. I think that's the case with Nebraska as well. Part of my challenge sometimes with Bruce is his first-person narrative storytelling that sometimes comes across as not authentic because as he becomes a bigger and bigger star, you know, it's just, I don't know, it just becomes less and less believable at times. And, and this song doesn't have any of that. It's stripped of any sort of forced Bruce sort of talking to his people, right? This is him telling a, a true, like, authentic story, and, and it comes across that way. That's why this is one of his best songs. That's why it's one of the songs that just doesn't have any of that sort of air of, you know, I'm Bruce around it. And the album doesn't either, of course. That's an excellent point. And that's true, this song and the album as a whole, this is Bruce as a third-person observer and narrator of other people's stories. We mentioned Nebraska, the title track. It's basically about Charles Starkweather, a serial killer in Check out a young Martin Sheen with a very young Sissy Spacek in mm. Terrence Malick's movie Badlands. I don't know if you guys have seen that. That's about that killing spree. I think Bruce returned to this style on subsequent albums like The Ghost of Tom Joad, but I don't think he ever approached the quality of Nebraska with that style in any of its subsequent albums. So it's kind of a brilliant one-off in that regard. It stands alone in his discography. And I think the best song on it, the song that best represents the album is Atlantic City. All right, Larry, you're up with the next pick. All right, so I've got a little bit of the same dilemma that Scott had in that the album that I'm going to pick from and the artist, I have two songs that I could go back and forth with. And Scott's probably going to smile because he knows what it is and keep those two. But I just gave Scott a lot of shit for picking the song that he said is the bigger song, but maybe not his favorite or what he thought was the best song. So it would be totally disingenuous and a little hypocritical of me to do the same thing. So I'm not going to pick maybe the consensus bigger song. I'm going to pick the song that I think is the best song. Two for one time. I am sure that we will end up talking about both songs. Where your horses run free Cause I felt a little ill When I 
when I saw all the pictures of the jockeys that were there before me. Believe it or not, I started to worry. I wondered if I had enough class. But it was Saturday night. So that was the purple one, Prince, with Little Red Corvette off of 1999. Obviously, the other song that I debated was 1999, but Little Red Corvette is more Prince to me. I mean, the way he starts that song with a little bit of a sigh and a little sultry lyrics. And then, I mean, he's talking about used Trojans, right? What could be more Prince than hooking up with a chick with used Trojans? There's just more to this song that makes it more funk prince for me 1999 is a great song don't get me wrong it's probably more anthemic it's probably a little more recognizable for some people but again i want to pick the song that i think is the best off the album it's got to be little red corvette i mean that was probably the first prince song that i ever heard where i'm like i don't know who this is but it's so different from that dude's different. different that dude's yeah. different that dude's different he's got something i think he's gonna go places yeah i agree i would have picked little red corvette but in 1999 is such an iconic song and it's so messed up right like 1999 was 17 years into the future at the time and now it's 24 years in the rearview mirror kind of messed up um yeah. when you talk about prince right he, prince was the funk guy. the thing is he's everything right so like prince. you say little red corvette is this version of prince like 1999 is also a very distinct version of Prince, right? And and that's why he's such a freaking mastermind and can do literally anything that he sets out to do. He's likely going to be successful. He's likely going to create something magical. And 1999 is a great song. Little Red Corvette's a great song. Yeah, you can't go wrong. If I have to pick two against two, I'm going Little Red Corvette in 1999 over Billie Jean and beat it for prince this is michael jackson's previous album right off the wall this was the album before the really big album right purple yeah. ring yeah. and little red corvette was his first top 10 u.s hit this was also his first album with the revolution his best backing band though he played most of the album himself again where the similarities are there right like this is his precursor but that's why i said like you know i heard little red corvette and i'm like i don't know who this guy is but He's awesome. He's different. I want to make sure I like find out what his next album is going to be. And Purple Rain, I don't know if I bought it the day it came out, but I certainly bought it. The well, week he was inescapable by then. That was a monster album. For Little Red Corvette, you'd have to be pretty deep into music to know. Prince. Yeah, you'd have to be pretty plugged in. Yeah. If I had this pick, I would have went with 1999. I just yeah. think it's slightly better and more iconic. And the plays on Spotify, I hate to be like the nerd who keeps bringing up Spotify, but... You will be. But yeah, I will be. 119 million versus 43 million. But okay. like we talked about, you can't really go wrong with either song. They're both all-time Prince classics. It's also worth noting that the single versions of both songs are considerably shorter than the album versions. Little Red Corvette delivered all this R&B-based pop rock. And one thing that's unique about it is that Revolution guitarist Des Dickerson plays lead guitar on the track instead of Prince. So that's definitely different. And one thing about 1999 that I thought, Larry, you would appreciate 
is to trade it all vocal. That's kind of like the family stone right there, right? I love it. I love it. Don't get me wrong. It's a great song. I'm not dissing 1999. I just, I like Little Red Corvette a little bit better. That's all. It's a mellower song. It's a great tune. Can't go wrong. Both classics. All right, Floman. You got doubles. And now we're in the gray zone because we've exhausted the big ticket. Now anything could happen. Anything. All right. Brace yourself, boys. Oh, I'm ready. Actually, no, I wasn't ready. (laughs) Yeah, I'm surprised by this one. I think once we hear the clip, we'll understand why, though. Chameleons with in shreds, shredding in, in shreds. I think that was actually their first single that they ever released. And we'll get to this in the 90s. There's definitely a British metal feel to that song. That, and again, in 1982, it just feels like that there's uh, something about that song that just transports me into my head, but also brings up other musical genres. It's post-punk, but it's also like pre... If anyone's a fan of Anathema from the 2000s or the late 90s into the 2000s, you might hear some of what I'm talking about. It's a wild stab and say that probably most listeners are not familiar with Anathema. <laughs> so again, that's Chameleons. They were, you know, relatively short-lived and probably never had the success that they clearly deserved. But to me, that song just jumps jumps out of the page. It's one of those sort of finds that jumps out of the page, and it's hard to ignore for me. Yeah, the song is intense and rocking. It has appealingly rough vocals. It has creative and very busy drumming. And jangly guitars. It should have been called It Shreds, not In Shreds, because it definitely does shred. And there's definitely a heavy Cure-like vibe to it as well. And this is one of the bands that I kind of discovered through the Rate Your Music website, which we occasionally talk about. They're very popular there. Yeah, it's a cool pick. I mean, I didn't expect it, but it's a damn good song, so no complaints. Yeah, very atmospheric, very moody. I like it. I did not have it on my, even my deep draft board, but 
I'm glad that you picked it. It's not exactly the same, but I almost feel like I, I'm pretty sure they're a Manchester band. And I, you know, I kind of hear a little like beginnings of like Manchester vibes, like late 80s, early 90s vibes coming from them. That's sort of the vibe that I get from them. It says they're from the greater Manchester area. But yeah, I agree, I agree with you. It's got that sound again that was expo- again exploding year, like a decade later. It's post punk and it's got Joy Division, Cure, and later sort of stuff that it maybe maybe influenced through that scene. Freaking love that song. You had us a cure, or maybe you had us a Joy Division. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Should we send a proposal to the band to rename the song "It Shreds"? Shreds and shredding. You okay with that? All right. What's next? I've got one song that I know I'm going to play at the end that won't get picked, and now I'm between two songs that are very different. Would you like us to vote on it? Yeah, I'll let you guys vote on it. One of them I'm pretty sure is not on your draft board, and the other one might be. Uh It's always fun picking other people's songs. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, didn't expect either of those. I had one of them on my deep list. I would go with the first one, personally. I would probably go with the first one, too. The second one is a major favorite of one of our loyal listeners, Dr. Gary Stone. All right, Dr. Gary. Scott overruled you. What's interesting about the first one is that from our biased American perspective, it's a two-hit wonder. But the yeah. first hit was 1973, I think. So that's a pretty big five. I think it was 75. I think it was 75. I think it's, it was 73, actually. But what's amazing, what's <laughs> amazing to me is that what used to feel like a long time in music is now like one album or <laughs> two albums. <right? laughs> it's, it's the timeline is so different where it feels like they were generations apart, and now it's just standard. Right, it's practice, like, you know, right? one album. But I, I, I agree. I don't know how many albums they had between. I like this song better than their first hit. Me too. This is a better song. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. That's a great driving song. Confirmed, 1973. Oh, my God. Driving. By the way, though, you're right. The first song is a great driving song. That whole album's great. And they're a big Dutch band. Again, one of those bands, bigger success elsewhere here in the U.S. Two-hit wonder. So the other song, can I say it? The other song we're not picking is Donna Summer's State of Independence. She's known as a 70s artist, and she is, but she had some good tunes in the 80s as well. And this is definitely one of them, but we're not going with that. Sorry, Gary. It's a great song, though. It is a great song. It's not like a Donna Summer song. It's not what you think it was a Donna Summer song. It's very synth-heavy and funky and has world music influences. So it's definitely different than what you think of with Dinosaur, for sure. And that's part of what makes it very interesting. But like we said, we're going with another song, which we're going to play in a sec.
Props there, Keith. This was a deep honorable mention for me. Love it. It's a kick-ass tune. It's not sort of the type of song I generally are going to be drawn to, but repeated plays are rewarded for that song. It bites, man. It, it bites. Golden Earring in their 1973 song, Radar Love. Apparently a great driving song. Uh, <laughs> Scott's point, at least in the U.S., there are only two known songs. Nine years apart, we think it was 73 to 82. A lot of shit happened in between that. And very few bands around in 73 were still around, cranking out relevant music in 82. You can hear similarities and you can hear sort of how this was an 80s song versus Radar Love, but still a, a kick-ass song. By the way, Quincy Jones did produce State of Independence. And the uniqueness of the Donna Summer song is that the backing vocalist for that song included Lionel Richie, Diane Warwick, Michael Jackson, Christopher Cross, Diane Cannon, Kenny Loggins, Loggins, Michael McDonald, and Stevie Wonder. Wow. (laughs) Damn. That's quite the mix. And the backing vocals are a big part. Of the, end of, of the end of the song. They say it was like sort of led to We Are the World. Like, I was just going to say, did you say for Africa? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we add that to the playlist as well, Larry? All right. All right. We'll add them both. There you go, Doc. You got your song. There you go, Gary. I think the reason why Twilight Zone isn't a quote-unquote Keith song is because it's a classic rock song. And you're the like alternative metal guy, right? But yeah. it has... A great groove, really good vocals. The guitars are cool as fuck. And this is another song where the album version, which is like eight minutes long, is almost twice as long as the single version. There's a harshness to the vocals that makes it cool, too, like relative to others in the genre. Cool, too. A deep track, but a goodie. Not a deep track as it was a hit, but these days it is, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's sort of one of those songs that just pops back into your consciousness. Yeah. In a big way. All right. Waldman. You're up. All right. I'm going with a song by an artist that we played before. This is a comeback song for a couple of reasons. So we played this artist before. What um, year do we play them? Can we say that? We cannot say that yet. And after the song that we played, Artist had a couple of other really great albums, but definitely started to go on a little bit of a downward spiral. And then Marvin. Went, Marvin went for like seven years of just like nothingness, like bleak, depressed, drugs, divorce. Larry's trying to get his groove on right now. That's right, baby. That's right. <laughs> Not with either of you two clowns, but... For all the ladies out there. Yeah, for all the ladies out there. But this was a triumph for him. This was his biggest album and his biggest song. And When did he do the All-Star Game, 83? Sounds about right. Yeah, because I I think it was after this. And he was literally dead. Yeah. What year did he die? Soon after this, yeah. It was 83. It was right after this. I think it may have been 84. He's a 70s artist. He had a lot of classic tunes. We've talked about some of them. He had one more all-time classic tune up his sleeves with this one. Great tune. But very 80s. Very different. Ooh, 
Rest in peace, Marvin. I mean, you're going to go out, you might as well go out big, right? You might as well go out with your, your biggest hit. Might as well go out with a comeback, getting restored in the Pantheon. Props. You know how many babies Marvin actually has? <laughs> he is responsible for a lot of babies out there. The song definitely would have fit well on Let's Get It On. The more modern sound... More slick synthesizer bass. Yeah, I mean, this is all 808, right? This is a rolling 808 doing all those little, you know, hand claps and the snares and the tinny drums. But it is definitely of its era, but it's also a little timeless because it's got Marvin. I mean, it's it's got his vocals. And yeah, yeah, it totally, totally would fit on Let's Get It On, except it's a little bit more updated for the time. What is not is what's going on. <laughs> it is not what's going on. No, definitely not. Definitely a totally different vibe. And this is also his first post-Motown record. Yep, yeah. His only post-Motown record, at least while he was alive. I also have to shout out to the video because the video is also so much of its time and it's so awesome. So it starts off with Marvin in a tux, in a club, grooving, singing, surrounded by super hot backup singers. And then inexplicably, it goes into a limo where he's watching a video of himself going to the doctor. Of course, the doctor is super hot. He's kind of like, oh, like touching his head, being like, oh, I feel so bad. It's so 80s and so terribly cheesy. They would have been better off if it was just him grooving in the nightclub. But that was the 80s for you. Makes you think of the Roscoe's, right? Doctor, Mrs. MD, can you tell me what's ailing me? Yeah. <laughs> well, and this also, let's not forget, too, this also, you know, Marvin's passing or hit, well, Marvin's murder also inspired another 80s song, which I don't think we'll pick, but. I may pick it, actually. That's how much I love it. Great he song. was killed by his father in 1984. Unbelievable to think that it ended that way for him. What a damn shame. This was a great comeback song. What's notable also is that aside from the guitars and some backing vocals, Marvin created all the music on this track. So he wasn't just a singer. He was a multi-talented guy. He got his start in Motown as a drummer. I don't know if you guys knew that. But anyway, obviously it's his vocals that are the primary selling point. It's totally on point. One of the greatest singers of all time. One of his signature tunes, his last truly great song. Rest in peace, Marvin Gaye. Peace. It's funny, I had two songs that I've been kind of going back and forth on. Didn't think I'd get both of them, but then Keith went and picked Telegraph Road, so it looks like I am going to get both of them. So I found the album, this next song is from to be disappointing, though my friends Dave Herzfeld and Jeff Livingston disagree with me on that. The album was still good, but to me, it's probably the weakest album from this version of this all-time band. This song is awesome, though. And it's another one of those songs you used to hear, but not so much anymore. Heath is the alternative and metal guy. I guess I'm the classic rock guy. Oh, you are definitely the classic rock guy. Though I love alternative and metal too. <laughs>
That was Little Guitars by Van Halen from their Diver Down album. And actually, in the playlist, we're going to add the short Little Guitar intro into Little Guitars as well, since they belong together and enhance each other. Naturally, this song is awesome guitar playing by Eddie Van Halen. and has a great melody and David Lee Roth sings with a sweetness that you don't find on too many Van Halen songs. Plus, the poppy harmonies are spot on as well, as per usual. I think that this song is an absolute classic, and it's one of their very best songs. And it's by far the highlight on Dive It Down, which, while still a quality album, was too short and had too many cover songs and joke tunes. I don't really like this album that much. Of the classic Van Halen, it's definitely my least favorite. I don't think it's that good. It feels like it's just a bunch of cover songs and then this. This is great. And the guitar playing is cool. Eddie's, like, technique on it, whatever that, like, finger-picking thing at the end, that's awesome. But... The rest of the album, there's not that many highlights on it. It's just too many covers. Although I do remember singing Oh Pretty Woman to a girl in like 10th grade. She was not impressed. <laughs> I like the intruder intro to Pretty Woman, the guitar part. No, no, that and part, the King's that part cover is great, right? Yeah, Where have all the awesome. good times gone? It's another great cover. They mailed it in for this album. I mean, this was a cash grab album in between other albums. Sorry, Dave and Jeff. These guys agree with me. <laughs> Little Guitars is a standout for the album, but it's sort of a sign of the band not realizing what they actually could have been, and it's sad. What they were, and what they could have been more than they were going forward, I guess, is what you mean, right? Yeah. They kind of blew it. They were an all-time band, but as great as they were, there should have been so much more. It's not even a question, right? 1984 even was, they were latching on to like the mid 80s, right? They they weren't true to. They had weren't classic tunes. We'll get to 1984. I know, but maybe again, in 1984. But the problem was they weren't true to their, to who they were. To me, they, they ultimately weren't true to they were. They're an all time band, but they could have been an all time, all time band, like way up there. And in that respect, they blew it. Yep. All right, come on. Okay, this is the other song. I wasn't sure I was going to get the pick, but I am. So this song and its parent album represented a new era and a major change in direction for this band. As synthesizers were now arguably the principal component of their sound, which is decidedly more electronics-based than produced and which owed much of the new wave and techno movements. The album also featured more subdued and normal if less distinctive vocals. Rush? Yes. I called it before I saw it, I swear. You did? And I had it on my list. Did you have it on my list? I had it on the Scott list, but it's a maybe Scott song. I thought I might have to pick this for the outro, because I definitely wanted to pick it. Larry definitely has Africa as his outro, but he can't get it. The Weezer version? <laughs> I love the Weezer version. I think I might like the story of why they did it better yeah. than and anything, but it's still awesome.
subdivisions. That was subdivisions from Rush, which starts the Signals album with an obvious standout track that's simply one of the band's biggest and best songs ever. Sure, it's synth-based, but it's also atmospheric and catchy with terrific, highly intelligent, easily relatable lyrics about teenage alienation. Plus, for all my complaining about synthesizers, this song still has a cool guitar solo. So I kind of figured this was going to be on your list. I wasn't 100% sure you had drafted. You know, it's funny. I, I feel like if you strip out the drums, because the drums are so good, it almost sounds kind of like Tangerine Dreamish, right? Like synthy, electronic-y, proggy, because they still are a prog band at heart. I kind of liked the direction that they went here. Like it's a little bit different. Maybe they overdid some of the synths a little bit, but I, I think this is a great, great album and song. And I always... Like, I remember some of my friends said they didn't like when Rush kind of did this. They were more late 70s, early 80s, more proggy Rush. I like when bands change it up a little bit and evolve a little bit. And I thought this is a cool evolution for them. Yeah, I think this is a great album, Race Under Pressure. Mm -hmm. After it's a great album, I think it was after that. They were still good, but they definitely lost something off their fastball. But this is a great album. The next song, The Analog Kid, is one of my all-time favorite Rush songs as well. New World Man's a good song, too. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like you said, they evolved. This was the next phase of Rush. It wasn't as good as the prior phases, maybe, but it was pretty darn good. That's my problem is like in the 80s, this was everywhere, right? Everyone was influenced by the phases and they changed direction and it wasn't a freaking good direction. It dates the music. Yeah, everyone was going more synthesizer based, more electronics. Rush definitely jumped in on that for sure. Yeah, I like the song. It's a cool album, but it's not comparable to some of their best work. I like the lyrical, like it's it's cool. But the lyrics are great. Conform or be cast yeah. out. So timely today, right? It'll always be timely, I think. There's certainly lots of good in there, but bands got caught up too much. Like it band, and it wasn't just bands, but it was it was the record producers, it was record labels. Like they all got sort of pushed in a direction because that's where music was. But it is what it is. Yeah, but this song to me is the best version of that. Sure. The drums are amazing. So, yeah, if amazing. nothing else, right, we got Neil Peart here. All right, so I got my last pick. It's 1982. It's the height of New Wave. We haven't picked any really, like, big traditional New Wave songs. I, I, I don't know what to do here. I think what I'm going to do is, inspired by my recent concert where I went to go see Band of Horses. They played an epic show, and they covered one of my favorite songs. I'm going to play that band's second favorite. I love this. I love this song. It's my third favorite song by the band. But Such a great song. I mean, your song was my third favorite. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. The others, not. This is my second. You want to know what song I thought you were going to play? Sure. Band of D.C., Bad Brains. I didn't play it on because I played it before. I have it on my list, but I played it before. I played it during our One Hit Wonders. No, you played it during our 80s tournament. Oh, our 80s tournament, yeah. I would have picked the other song on the album. I would have picked Band of That's, a, that's a good song. Uh, Sailing On? Yep. Yeah. No, definitely I would have went Band of DC. That guitar yeah. solo. Oh, my. The guitar solo in the other one is great, too. That's true. I guess you could pick one of them. You still got another pick, right? I could pick it. All right, remember you nominated this for our 80 song tournament. You didn't make it, but... I, I did. Well, now I'm getting it in. I don't really consider this new wave, though. I, to me, this is a rock song. 
it is a rock song, but it's, I don't know. A new wave band. I want to play it anyway. Yeah. yeah. But some of the new wave stuff I was going to play, like, yeah, you know. And I am the new wave and synth pop guy, but whatever. jumping if you larry you can take over what i've done there's an 80s element to it it's in between sort of the rock of that era and the new wave of that era like like here almost like lover boy and duran Duran. like same time yes it's that mix but it's way better than both than either (laughs) not even remotely close to lover boy but totally that's why i said like we haven't played any new wave songs and yeah i agree it's a rock song it's even a little bit it's like a poppy post-punk song, but it's in between rock and new wave and a little post-punk, and it just slays, man. It slays. So it hits deep. It's a great song. It's always relatively close on one of my playlists. I needed to get it in. And when I saw Band of Horses, they played a cover of Never Tear Us Apart that just slayed. It was fucking awesome. What's the In Excess song I'm talking about? I don't know, because to me, those are their two best songs. Their best rocker and their best ballad. Yeah, I thought those were the two you were talking about. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful. beautiful girl. Awesome. Yes, yes. Good call. Yeah. People may forget today, but In Excess were huge in the 80s. Yeah. And it's almost surprising to me. You know, sometimes I get surprised that, because I don't think of any excesses 1982. No, because their biggest successes came later, right? A few yeah. years later. Even like 85. And let's face it, Michael Hutchins was a rock star through and through. And we miss our rock stars, right? There aren't many rock he stars. He was like your Jim Morrison rock star. Yeah, he was a totally <laughs> charismatic, magnetic frontman and a good singer, too. I was never a huge fan of them, but I did like and respect them. This is a nothing fancy rocker. It's dated to the 80s, like you guys said. Many of their songs are dated to the 80s, but it's still a first-class, hard-driving rock tune with great drums. Great tune, man. I really like this draft. 
Yeah, it's shaping out pretty good. I'm, I'm hoping Scott says the same thing after my pick. But... <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. What's he going to do now? Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to be so happy, too, if it's one of the – I have, like, a very small list of really fucked up songs that Keith might pick. <laughs> Since we're on to Larry, still, you might pick The Clash, Rockin' the Casbah, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Or the jam, Town Called Malice. Also, those were possible picks. Since we're doing a couple honorable mentions, I probably would have done a a twofer of Situation and Don't Go by Yazoo. Yes, you mentioned you were definitely going to pick that. Vince Clark is kind of underrated, right? You think about a guy who was part of three at least semi-legendary bands, right? Yeah. You had Depeche Mode, Yaz or Yazoo, and then your Yeah. I'm going to add... Some honorable mentions here, because I'm a classic rock guy. I'm going to say some classic rock tunes. I don't think Keith is going to pick any of these songs, so I'll mention them. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Southern Cross. I had that as a deep cut for you. One of the ultimate Woodstock bands coming up with a classic in 1982. Who would have thought it, right? The greatest tribute from a legend to another. Elton John, Empty Garden. Rest in peace, John Lennon. And then Fleetwood Mac, Gypsy. I also thought you might go Hellion into Electric Eye. Thought about it. Or you've got another thing coming, right? I thought that might have been a little too obvious for you, and I thought you like Hellion into Electric Eye better. I love that transition from the Hellion into Electric Eye. That is one of the greatest priest moments. So, yeah, definitely thought about it. You only get five picks, right? I'm not going to pick Black Metal. That's by Venom. We talked about the new wave of British heavy metal. They were part of that. But the thing about Benham, influential as they were, all the bands they influenced were better than them. <laughs> but, but they were the first. I mean, they were the first. Though. They don't get as the credit for as groundbreaking as they were because they did lead to, you know, like so much. Black uh, metal, right? There's a genre <clears throat> called black metal. Exactly. So, they actually, they, there's their song and the genre. Um, and I'm not going to pick The Boiler, which I don't know if you guys know that one. I don't even know that one. Oh, yeah, I don't God. think I know that one. By Ronda Dakar and the specials, and it's fucked up. It's sick, <laughs> and you'll understand why I'm talking about it. It's so good. Why don't you draft it? It's good, but it's also it's like avant-garde. It's like avant-garde good. It, so an acquired it, taste kind of song.
get together on Saturday, can we play this for Claudia, Leanne, and Karina? I'll love it. <laughs> that is Junkyard by the birthday party. The great, legendary Nick Cage band from Australia. And the beginning of the song is epic. The end of the song, obviously, is fucking epic. And obviously, it's an acquired. Like, not everybody's going to like it, but... I don't know, man. It shit jumps out to me, and I cannot pick it. Cannot pick it. So, so I have to make an embarrassing confession for a music nerd. So I think like a week ago, or maybe two weeks ago, I didn't know that this was Nick Cave band. It's and very I, different than a lot of his later that's stuff. That's why. Let's be honest. If you played that for somebody who knows Nick Cave with no context, you wouldn't. You would be like, oh, that's that's totally Nick Cave. I get it. Come on. Yeah, no, it's much more raw. Much more punk. It's very intense. Nick Cave is a legend. He's been the dog prince of alternative rock. He's been churning out high-quality albums for, what, like 40 years now. I hear Iggy. I hear Suicide. Past Keith picks here. Very That's intense. I don't know the birthday party that well. Again, I know of them. I know Nick Cave. I know his solo stuff a lot better with the bad seeds. But, like you said, an acquired taste. But there's nothing in intensity there for sure. 1982, like you contextualize this, and you know, there's just stuff bursting, and there's a creativity to this. I get not liking it, but you can't put it in a in a box. There's just something bursting about this, and I like intensity sometimes, right? Like there's sometimes where you just need to have that explosion, and this song like brings the explosions. <laughs> we're all fans of Peaky Blinders, right? And they make great use of music and a lot of times great use of Nick Cave music. You know what band they also play a lot of? I'm thinking PJ Harvey, but who else? Radiohead. Joy Division. And Radiohead. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder we like the show, right? Yeah. All right, Flowman. Let's go. Right. Fucking good. Before we get to it, since we're not picking Come On Eileen, if the song was named Let's Go Eileen, probably doesn't get the same amount to play. Probably not. Let's Go Eileen. Come On Eileen. That's Talk fair. about one at one is Melt yeah. With You, Modern English, another classic. I think we should play Come On Eileen. And in tribute to Matthew Perry and Chandler Bing, rest in peace, let's talk about A Flock of Seagulls. <laughs> and Space Age love song, classic tunes. That is great. I forgot about the episode where he's got the flock of seagulls. Here. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Eileen is a great tune, man. If not for like the One at Wonders episode, we probably would have drafted it. Let's play a little bit of Come on, Eileen. Especially you got to play the beginning because the beginning is fucking epic. Before the part everyone knows, right? Exactly. As a matter of fact, I remember being in a car with my girlfriend at one time. Most of the time they don't even play the beginning, but they did. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Come on, Eileen. She's like, no, it's not. You know what? We're not meant to be together. This is one of the ultimate pub songs, right? Everyone's singing along.
major Van the Man influence there as well? And what band songs did they cover and are they hit with? Oh, god damn it. I know, I know. I just listened I to it. It's, I, um... it's a tribute to another great singer. Exactly. It's about an artist, another artist. Jackie uh, Wilson said. Jackie Wilson. I got it right as you said it. Uh, you got it a little after I said it, actually. I think right as you said it. <laughs> All right. So outro song time. Originally, I was going to go with a song called Halloween by a band called The Dream Syndicate. A great song. It's very influenced by the Velvet Underground, maybe Neil Young and television as well. It's all about its guitar groove. But we're not going to go there, but you should definitely check it out. The reason I was going to pick Halloween is because today is Halloween, October 31st, 2023. But what we're going to do instead is pay tribute to a legendary band who maybe we should have drafted some more songs from. Truthfully, this song is more like a solo song by the main guy in the band, but it's a phenomenal song and probably this legendary band's last truly great song. So here we go. Thank you. 